continue the series in John, and stand once more, if you would, please, in honor to the Word of God. We'll be in John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 3. I appreciate Pastor allowing me the chance to preach once again on a Sunday, and we'll do this periodically, just every so often, get a chance to preach and swap out, give him a rest. He needs it, poor guy. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard, folks. Come on, now. John, John chapter 8 and Romans 3. And so, boy, with John 8, I, I just got to be honest, I struggled with it. And I was trying to think, boy, if there could be somewhere else I could go. But I think, man, in, in, in preaching the whole counsel of God and feeding the flock of God, which is what a, a pastor is called to do for his sheep, he's not just going to pick and choose verses that he likes out of Scripture and, and only focus on those. But I think the healthiest churches are the ones who get a full meal every single time they come to church and, and constantly just get in the Word. And I believe the whole counsel of God is just that, kind of preaching straight through Scripture. And so I like the concept of just staying in the series through John chapter 8. If God kept it in the Scripture, there must be something good for us to get out of it. And obviously there is in this text. Uh, but it was one of, those, one of those passages that I just read and read hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of information on. And, uh, and so, for better or worse, here we are, folks. Buckle up, and here we go. John chapter 8. We'll get to Romans chapter 3 a little bit later, where it talks about the law that Jesus is, in some ways, dismantling here and rebuilding in a new light. And so, John chapter 8, verse number 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. So, here in Jerusalem, kind of back and forth. There and then coming in and doing some teaching. Verse 2, and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. I need a stool to sit down and teach a little bit. All right, Jesus did it. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, this big crowd of people interrupting this teaching service, they set her in the midst. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus <laughs> stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. Uh, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, said unto them, Well, he that's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And um, Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Boy, what a picture of grace. And yet not a contradiction to the law either. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the truth of Scripture in attesting this beautiful story for us. And 
So I pray that Christians are helped today by the example of this woman. I pray that um, those that are lost are convicted by the, the truth of Scripture and that they don't just turn and walk away, but that they repent in the same way she did. I pray, God, that you'll bring somebody to you today. I, I believe Calvary Baptist Church members are praying that same thing. I believe all of us want to hear from you today and be blessed by your word and helped by it to go out and help others as well. Thank you, God, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. My house was built in about 2001. We live up in the Winchester area, and connected to our back porch is this pergola, and it was built about the same time as the house, so a couple decades old by now almost, and it's starting to fall apart, and some of the one by two, I mean the two by twos are kind of warped and twisted out of shape, and the, you can say the bones are good, but the cosmetics need some uh, uplifting. And so we just submitted plans just last week to reuse some of the, the wood that's on there and kind of rebuild a whole new structure from the ground up. We're going to tear the entire thing and break it down. I got my neighbor Annette here. She's our next door neighbor. She's going to be hearing a lot. We got lag bolts in here, so she'll be hearing the she'll be hearing the construction sounds next door. But the idea is that look, I, I guess I inherited it um, honestly from my dad that I'm going to try to reuse everything, partially because I'm cheap and partially because I think, <laughs> hey, it's pretty good wood still. And so we're going to pull all that wood apart. We're going to hammer the nails out. We're going to pull it. I used to get a penny a nail when we would pull nails out of boards, and my dad was so cheap that he'd say, straighten those nails, we're going to reuse them. <laughs> so here I am pulling these nails out, a penny a nail, I've got a bucket of, you know, I got like two bucks that day after all the work that I did as a seven-year-old probably, and I think I'm going to do the same with my seven-year-old now. All right, Abe, you'll get a penny a nail. I might raise it to a nickel for inflation, a nickel a nail. That sounds better anyway. We're pounding out the nails, and we're pulling them out, and we're straightening them out. And I plan on doing that exact thing, taking the lag bolts out and piecing it all the way down to basically just leaving two posts that are there. And I, I had to buy some brand-new lumber. I've got a shipment on its way. It's coming. But, you know, it really grates me to have to buy, you know, that I didn't know lumber was, was brown. I thought it was, you know, paint-colored. I always thought lumber was white. My brother has a... Uh, he, he just built his porch, and most of it's new lumber. But he said, you know, that center beam right there was from Brother Wilson's old deck, circa, what, 1996 or something, <laughs> from way back then. He stored it and stored it and stored it. All that good lumber will pay off someday, and here it is paying off. And it's true. It's true. I like it. He's reusing something that, that has some uh, uh, value to it. Now, there's a difference between demolition and reconstruction. Demolition, you're taking a sledgehammer and you're just breaking everything apart and throwing it all away in the dumpster. But reconstruction or, or deconstruction is actually pulling the screws out, pulling the nails out, taking the time to take it down carefully, set it aside, maybe scratch off the old paint, repaint it, but reuse as much of it as is, as is there as is possible. In some ways, what Jesus Christ has been doing through the book of John is not demolishing the Old Testament. He didn't come to just wipe away everything in the Old Testament, but he's, he's kind of deconstructing their thoughts about the Old Testament, and he's dismantling their concept of what the Messiah is and what God is. And, and in some ways, what Jesus Christ did was some, who he was was something completely different from what they were expecting. 
and he's, he's dismantling their thoughts through his teachings and through his actions and through what he's doing on, we've read it in the, in the past in the book of John, healing on the Sabbath day, how dare you? And right in the face of what they think is what a spiritual person should be and do, Jesus turns it up on its head. And he's dismantling their concept of what religious people are and deconstructing their Jewish worldview without demolishing it. He's not doing away with it, but he's reusing those pieces to build up something better and stronger and more enduring with the same pieces. He's reassembling it into a grander structure, we can say. And so little by little through the book of John, we've seen Jesus dismantling and deconstructing their concepts. And here's another story where where they had their idea of what the law was supposed to be and do. And so we see Jesus sitting there in the temple in in the outer courtyard area, sitting on a stool and this big gathering of people as he would come into the temple and teach. And then all of a sudden, the scribes and Pharisees, kicking and screaming, drag this girl into the middle of this assembly of people and say this in verse 3 or 4, John chapter 8. Brought a woman taken in adultery, verse 4. They say unto him, Master or teacher, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. These are the religious leaders now. It doesn't necessarily tell us when they caught her or where they brought her right away. I'm not going to read into the text something that's not there. And in a lot of my reading, there was some of the speculation about how and when and who it was that brought her. And we don't know. It just says the scripture says, they say unto him. So the scribes and the Pharisees come and bring them. It doesn't say which ones of them were the witnesses to this act, but this woman caught in adultery. And... um, And so it's obvious they're missing something. Um, It doesn't tell us about any man, obviously. There was some kind of trap going on. There's some, maybe the man got away, I don't know. But obviously takes two, and yet she's the only one that they bring. And then verse 5, look at their sneering voice. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. Such there is a, is a feminine word, almost like saying such women, such like these kind of women should be stoned. Her kind does not belong here with us religious elite. And, and so she should be stoned. Now, if you read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the, the Ten Commandments is one of the commandments is that thou shalt not commit adultery. And he that committeth uh, uh, adultery with his neighbor's wife, it says, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It just says that they should be put to death. It doesn't necessarily say that she should be stoned. And so maybe they're reading something in. There is a law in Deuteronomy 22 that says, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, they shall both die. Uh, But it says in the next verse, if a damsel that's a virgin be betrothed unto a husband and she be found in adultery, she'll be stoned. But it doesn't necessarily say that a married woman caught in adultery should be stoned. So maybe they're manipulating the text. Maybe they're just bringing this this catch-22, this gotcha question, this this dichotomy. What should we do if, if she's caught in adultery? Moses says she should be stoned. But, verse 5, what sayest thou? The end of verse 5. Okay, so we've got you, Jesus. We've got, this, we've got almost this lynching party. We've got this mob mentality that we're going to kill her 
If you tell us to, we'll do it. And then the Roman authorities who were overseeing the Jewish presidings, they would not allow a lynching to happen, a stoning to happen right there on the premises. So they say, if Jesus says we're going to uphold the law, we're going to have this stoning and Jesus will be in trouble because he incited all his followers to have this stoning and he'll be, he'll be carted off. But if he says she's okay, then he's going against Moses and everybody knows that's not right either. So we've got him. We've got him. This is right where it hurts and this is a trap. And that's exactly what it says in verse 6. This they said, tempting him. They did this all the time. They came to questions with Jesus, tempting him and seeing what his teachings were and, and, and where he would slip, slip up and what kinds of things he would mess up on. In verse 7, so they continued asking him. And, and they, they persisted. And what do you say, Jesus? Is it the law or grace? You're coming and preaching forgiveness of sins. And you're preaching that Jesus is a nice guy and he's healing everybody. And you're doing all these nice things for people. Well, are you going to forgive her? Is it, and, and it's like they kept saying and kept tapping him on his back. And I love it. He just stoops over and starts writing on the ground. As if he heard him not. He just ignores them when they're pestering him. Is it law or grace? Is it law or grace? Moses' law? Or are you going to forgive her, Jesus? And they continued, and they continued, and they continued with almost like this false dichotomy. You know what a false dichotomy is? This idea that it's only two options on the table. If you choose one, you're automatically excluding the other. Or if you choose that one, you're excluding this one over here. And you can only have one choice. And it's like they're presenting Jesus with law or grace. We're going we're gonna, to uh, uh, fulfill the law and she'll be stoned, or we're going to forgive her and you'll do away with the law. What's going to happen, Jesus? I read some Navy SEAL books every now and then, and I couldn't remember which one it was exactly, but I like the concept that some Navy SEALs say, if I'm given two options, I'm going to find a third one. I don't even care. I'm going to force a third option out there. I'm going to find a way to get around. If I don't like these two ways, I'm going to find a way to figure out a third option here. And it's almost like Jesus kind of did that same thing. Whereas they were saying law versus grace. We've got to fulfill the law or you've got to extend grace and break the law. Which one are you going to do? And Jesus stoops down. In a, in a way, what he began to do was dismantle their concept of the law right there in front of them. And so let's undo your concept of the law, which you think it's to produce this mob mentality, to be this political uh, 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 purifier of the culture, to be this one that will kill anybody that doesn't keep our laws. And so what Jesus says, uh, he, just, he just bends over and starts writing. Again, I read page after page of speculation about what did he write in the sand. Did he write KJV in the sand? We don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Did he write the names of the accusers there in the sand? Did he write the names of the adulterers there in the sand? We don't know exactly what he wrote. We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says he stooped over and wrote in the sand. One of the concepts, and some people have gone so far as to say, if he's sitting there on a stool and he bends over and, and he's writing in the sand, you can't write very big, so he wrote probably at most about 18 characters long, and he so. 
you know, trying to figure out which phrase would fit in there. And so there's all these concepts. There's other concepts about what Jesus might have done. And in, in, in a tradition was to, uh, 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 the, the Roman would write down the law first and then read what he wrote down. So it was both written and oral law. And so what he said in the next, in the next line might have been what he had just written down there in the sand. It might have been the accusers that were written down, which were meant to be written on somewhere that was not permanent. And so there on the, on the temple floor and just the dust of the ground, he's writing names out there in a place that wasn't permanent, that could be wiped away after the judgment was spoken. We don't necessarily know, but we know what it did to them and we know what happened after the fact because he starts writing down. And then verse 7, he that's without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. For, let him first cast a stone at her. And he stoops down and writes again, and here's what it did to them, verse 9. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Paul, is it law or grace? Are you going to keep the law or are you going to keep this grace message that you've been saying? And, and in some ways what he's doing is saying, look, yes, there's an Old Testament law, and that's good. And yes, I've been preaching grace. I've been preaching forgiveness of sins. And that's also good. And we can have both at the same time. There is a third option here. It's not just the dichotomy of one against another. And, and that's what Paul understood when he was writing Romans. Skip over to Romans now, Romans chapter 3. This is that concept of what the law is and what it's good for and what's the purpose of the law. Why do we as Christians still read the Old Testament? Isn't it done away with? We don't have to do sacrifices anymore. So why do we have the law? Why do we care about the Ten Commandments on the Supreme Court? Well, why do we care about taking the Ten Commandments out of school? Why are Christians so up in arms about this? What's the deal with the law? Is there still law and what's the point? There was a, I'll get to Romans 3 in a second. I was watching a video of a street preacher who was telling uh, the, the group there, and one girl walked up to the microphone and asked the question, what's the standard to get into heaven? And he said, perfection. And she said, well, are there people in heaven? And he said, yes. Oh, well, there are, is there anything I can do to get to heaven? And he said, no. But there are people in heaven. And he said, yes. Well, who's in heaven? How did they, were they perfect? And he said, no. And she had a confused look on her face, and he says, I'm just answering your questions. <laughs> yeah, but, but how, how? And he said, I'm glad you asked. And he proceeded to preach the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, of taking imperfect people into the presence of a perfect God. And perfection is the requirement to be in heaven. And so he laid out, in some ways, a legal case for our, our chance to be able to enter heaven. And Romans 3 is almost like we're on trial, man. We're in this courtroom, and, and, and for verse after verse, it tells us about the wickedness of our sin. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Inside are full of dead men's bones from head to toe. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Their, their hands are vi Everything about us reeks of sin and is wrecked by sin and verse number 19 it pretty much sums it up in Romans 3 19 now we know that what things soever the law saith it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped you know those guys that run their mouths on the basketball court 
Those atheists that run their mouths about against God as if they will be still running their mouths after they're dead. God says, I'll stop their mouths. They won't be talking anymore after they face me on judgment day because the law is against them and they know they've broken the law and all the world, there's the phrase in the end of verse number 19, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world may become guilty before God. But there are people in heaven? Yes. But they're not... Uh, what's the standard to get into heaven? Perfection. Yeah, but you just said all the world shall be guilty before God. Well, yeah, that's what the law shows us. Because there's no way we can keep the law. The law, verse number 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Oh, okay, I've got to do good works. I've got to do the Ten Commandments. I've got to obey God. And do all these deeds of the law. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not going to justify you in his sight. Here's the point of the law, verse 20. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. It's that, it's that, that, that painful scan that shows up on the scanner that, boy, I've got something, I've got a diagnosis now of this health problem and now I've got to go through some pain in order to uh, uh, take care of it. But at least I know now. And the law is not the thing that justifies, not the thing that saves, not the thing that gives you perfection, but just reveals to you that I am not a perfect being. I watched some videos, and you may have seen uh, some videos by a man named Ray Comfrey. He's up in the Huntington Beach area, and he does street evangelism right there on the beach and films it for people to see. And it always leads people through the conscience, back to their realization of the law. And, and he just uses the Ten Commandments. This is the difference between humans and animals. The knowledge of God in us is our conscience. This God awareness, this awareness that something in me is not right and that I'm a sinner before God and that I'm driven to know something higher than me. It's more than just self-awareness. It's it's a God awareness. We see this in cultures everywhere around the world that inside everybody, whether they've heard of the God of the Bible or not, they're driven to worship something. And so they're driven to spirit worship or they're driven to ancestor worship. They're driven as humans to be worshiping people because there's something inside of all of us inherent in humans to know, and the Bible calls it, our conscience that lying and cheating and stealing and hurting others is wrong. And so these videos I talked about have always, have always directed people through the Ten Commandments. And sometimes he just uses, well, are you a good person? Well, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And these interviews that he does, well, how many lies have you told? Oh, thousands. What do you call somebody that tells thousands of lies? Well, a liar. Okay, have you ever stolen something, even if it's small? Oh, yeah, small. Well, what do you call somebody that steals something? I guess a thief, Yeah. Well, have you ever taken God's name in vain? You know, said something like, oh, my, and then said God's name. And, and the Bible calls that taking his name in vain. Have you ever done that? Well, yeah, I do it all the time. Sometimes they say, well, bleepity bleep. Yeah, I do that all the time. And he says, that's blasphemy. That's very serious to God. That's his name. You wouldn't drag your mother's name through the mud, and yet we do it with God's name all the time, sometimes without thinking about it. And it's blasphemy. It's a very serious offense to God. He says, have you ever looked at a, a, a woman or a man with lust in your heart? He said, well, yeah, I, I've done that. Everybody's done that. And, and Jesus took the Ten Commandments a step further and said, if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. 
And those are just four of the Ten Commandments, and I'm not judging you. He says, I'm not judging you, but if you were to stand before God and say, you know what, I thought I was a good person, but apparently I'm a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer at heart, do you think you'd do pretty good on Judgment Day? And ultimately, their conscience is working on him now. They have to go, no, I guess I wouldn't. And, and so on Judgment Day, then, would you be innocent or guilty? And inevitably, the conscience leads you to say, guilty, heaven or hell? Well, hell. And whether they believe in heaven or hell or not, the idea is that the conscience of the law is meant to reveal the sin that's inside our own hearts. The purpose of the law is not to save, but therefore by, uh, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This sense of guilt that I know I've broken the commandments of a father. I may not be able to see God, but I know there's an ultimate creator being. And if I'm still here and I'm still living and life seems to be going pretty good and it's not, it's not all burned up, there must be some kind of purpose to life and there must be some direction that all these humans on life should be moving toward. And a thinking person, any rational thinking person, their minds will be automatically drawn to a higher being than themselves. And what God is saying is that's your conscience that's drawing you to me. And what Jesus did is said, I support everything in the law. Yes, I still believe the law. Yes, the Ten Commandments are still real. Yes, thou shalt not commit adultery. Obviously not. And yet what he was doing was not doing away with the Ten Commandments. If he's, if he's, if he's thinking that... that that he's going to buy into their mentality that we'll just be the judge and the jury will be the ones to stone her. And, and so these, these are terrible sinners. These are just her kind. This is a woman caught in adultery, and so we should kill her. We should stone her. We should do away with her. If Jesus bought into that mentality, what he's doing with the law in some ways is, is just kind of expanding it. You're coming for this lynching. You're coming with a noose that's for this girl. But wait a minute, the noose is broader than that. It like captures all of us. It's not just for this one, her kind, this such a one as this girl. That noose captures all of us in sin. And there's nobody that escapes. Romans chapter 3 verse 21, or verse 23, sorry, you know this verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is the judge. His standard is perfection. And what God is doing is saying, look, perfection is, is, is required to enter my heaven. And so the law and the prophets all bring uh, a witness to that. Verse 21 says, and Jesus says, yes, of course the law is good. And they continue pestering him and asking him. And he says, well, he that's without sin, let him first to cast stone at her. First, cast the first stone at her. And, he, and he's upholding the law. He's saying, yes, she's guilty of her sin of adultery. Yes, I'm not doing away with that, but let's, if we're talking about the law, let's take the law to the extreme. Let's do all that's commanded by the law. And Deuteronomy 17 says, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put to death. And afterwards, the hands of all the people. So the witnesses who came to perform the stoning of an adulterous woman in the Old Testament had to be guiltless of the, the sin that they were accusing of. They had to come at it with a heart of, of purity in some ways that is saying, look, I'm approaching this for, for not, not this sense of revenge that the scribes and Pharisees seem to have, but this sense of purity before God. And Jesus said, obviously, you don't have that. So I'll uphold the law, yes, but if you're sinless... Like, if you're guilty in this, if your heart is right in this, then you cast the first stone. 
There were no witnesses that had been presented, just a group of people. He says, let's do this the right way. Because the law is not meant to be this foreboding hammer over the head. The law is just the revealer of the sin that's inside of us. And so we have God as the ultimate judge of us, of all of us in sin. And, and, and the Bible says that in, in Romans 3, look, all of us have sinned. Every single one of us are standing in the place of that adulterous woman. We are all guilty. And what, the, what, what Paul in the, later in the New Testament starts to explain in verse number 21 says, The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We're talking about God's righteousness here. It's this bleak courtroom that everybody's under sin, but God wants to show his righteousness. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. So belief is this idea that there is something wrong with me, yes, but even the law and the prophets, he says, just think about the Old Testament. There was always a way out of that that, that, that potential hammer that was going to drop on your sin. And for them in the Old Testament, it was the sacrifice of the lamb. It was the blood of the goat that was placed on the, offer, uh, uh, on the, on the altar. It was, this, it was this day of atonement that rolled their sins ahead. It was, this, it was this atonement that covered their sins. But they had to do it year after year after year and constantly keep on coming back to God with, with, with uh, this, this sacrifice and what he is saying is, yes, I've, I've deconstructed your concept of God as this judge, this big angry God up in the sky who wants to hammer us for our sins, who wants to kill the adulteress. It's not about that at all. Let's rebuild this structure with a little new information. The righteousness of God is now showing up. And verse number 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, you mean this righteousness? If I'm on the stand, if I'm on the stand and my verdict is, oh, I'm guilty, then what the judge is saying is I can pronounce you innocent if you accept this free gift. And, and I can pronounce, I can take away your guilt, I can take away your sin, I can take away your judgment because I've already passed that judgment on my son, Jesus Christ. And what Christianity, all Christianity is, is just a faith, a belief that Jesus Christ did that for me. And there's no act of the law. There's no acting out rosary beads. There's no acting out prayers. There's no acting out a, a confession to a priest. There's no acting involved in Christianity because the work has already been done. And Jesus Christ says, my righteousness is available to you by faith. Just by believing that I've done this work for you. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redeemed was a word in the song that we sang earlier. It's this idea that I am bought back. I, I, was, I, I was a slave to sin and Christ has redeemed me. He's covered my sin. There's all these big words in these, in these verses. Verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a, a, a substitution in your place, a substitutionary atonement, the one who takes your place in the judgment place where your wrath, you were going to have to face your wrath as a guilty sinner because your conscience is telling you, I know God is going to judge me for my sin. Faith in Christ takes that judgment and places it on Jesus Christ. Before I stand before God as hopeless, 
as that adulterous woman standing before this crowd of accusers and witnesses and having no defense except Jesus Christ who bows down and starts writing in the sand. Now, is that, is that some action that I can take as a Christian that makes me some kind of a good person? Not at all. Verse 27 in Romans 3 still. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? Like, can I boast that I've worked my way to heaven? Well, nay, but by the law of faith. As a faith, as a person of faith, I'm, 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 I'm so uh, dependent only on Jesus Christ for my salvation, I can do no works that will get me there. Verse 31 of Romans 3. Do we then make the, the law, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. So all this talk about the law, does that mean the Ten Commandments are thrown out? Does that mean Jesus is dismissing her case like she didn't have to do anything? Does that mean the law is void? Just, just okay, I have faith, I guess, if that's going to save me. Is that going to be the thing? No, 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 you're missing the point because the law itself is established or rooted or grounded or in some ways you could say it like this, it all makes sense by faith. Because everything that the law was pointing to, all the sacrifices of the lambs and the rams and the goats, all of that was pointing ahead at, a, at, a, at the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm dismantling your thought that it was somehow about the Lamb or about the priest. It was not about them at all. It was all about Jesus Christ. It was all about me. Everything in the law and the prophets, the warnings came as a picture pointing ahead to this moment where Jesus says, it's about me. It's like trusting a parachute when you jump out of an airplane. It's not someday I'll get saved. It's not someday I'll become a Christian. It's not someday I'll kind of have this faith thing. No, it's like saying, you know what? I am fully trusting in Jesus Christ, and that's a moment of trust. That's a moment of new birth, and it was for the woman in John chapter 8. If you look back at that, John chapter 8 now. John chapter 8, verse 10, look at this. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Women, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? No man, Lord. No man, Lord. You were guilty. You were definitely under the law. You should have been punished. I upheld the law by saying, all right, we're going to do the law the right way. If you're sinless, yeah, you cast the first stone. Let's do this right. And so it's not, uh, it's not the law versus grace. He upheld the law, and yet he extended grace. And, and, and she says in those three words, verse 11, no man, Lord. The word Lord just means master of my life. The one who is the controller of my life. One, one author said this. The law could only condemn her to death. This man offered her hope when hope was dead. He had come into the world not to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He wouldn't dismiss her sin. He would die for her sin. Amen. He says in verse 11, oh, Well, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. 
You're standing there before God as a lying, blasphemous, adulterer at heart, and you're standing there saying, God, I can never work my way to heaven. I can never get my own, uh, uh, my own deeds will never be good enough to get to heaven. I launch myself by faith into the arms of Jesus Christ, complete trust and a complete new life that I'm desiring by living for God. This is this is what the skeptics would say is, man, this portion shouldn't be in Scripture because it means that Jesus is just dismissing people willy-nilly. He's just forgiving sin. He's just letting adulterers go free. And, and, and they don't have to, you know, I, I can't believe we would teach this. Let's cut it out of the Bible. So there's a big debate about that. And listen, that's a complete misread of the law. He's not doing away with the law at all. He says, we're going to do this right. Jesus is a judge of sin. Just read the book of Revelation. He flattens the whole world because of sin. Jesus is the judge of, uh, of sin. But listen, a forgiving Lord brings a fruitful life. A new Lord brings a new life. And that's what this woman found that day. For Christians, look what, look what he says, verse number 11. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Doesn't mean she's going to be a perfect person. But because she placed her faith... In the new Lord of her life, he says, this repentance, repentance is just a change of mind, a new Lord taking over your life, a new direction for your life, this idea that I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ, and he's going to be the one to dictate what I do from now on. And he says, go and sin no more. This life together with Jesus Christ is no longer under the bondage of the law. Christianity is not follow Jesus because the law says so. Christianity is not a list of rules that you have to do because I say so, as if it's the law. Jesus says, no, I've forgiven you. Now go live a life that's new and fresh and abundant, full of the real kind of life that I'm talking about. The life that is a life of gratitude and thanksgiving for the forgiveness in the face of all my accusers. Before you were saved, the devil was the accuser, the great accuser, the one who was standing in your life saying you're a failure. If you're saved, that was just a moment of faith saying Jesus Christ has taken my failures and placed them on himself and I'm going forward with this new faith in Jesus Christ. That's all salvation is. It's not a religion of do, do, do. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ who says it's done. You know the song, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. Praise the Lord for that. As Christians, we can all serve a new life in that same spirit that Jesus told that woman. Go and sin no more. Have a new Lord of your life. If you've never been saved, I'm calling you to the same place that she was called to, this place of faith in Jesus Christ. Stand, if you would, please. We're going to sing a hymn, and this hymn is just a chance for you to be able to say, you know what, God, I have questions about this salvation, or I have questions, or I just want to be dedicated and devoted to you. We'll sing 820, a song that a pastor friend of ours sang when we were on a youth trip, a song that you can basically memorize really quickly, a song called God is so good. And he said, the last two words of this song are my favorite in the whole song. It's the last two words are to me. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me, to me. That woman found in adultery, 
that one who is just as guilty as her. So we're going to sing, I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing this, this, uh, these four stanzas of this song. This is just your chance to respond to God. We have uh, counselors who can help you from the scripture know how to find that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We have ways uh, uh, to help you understand what baptism is and all these things. We want to just extend this time as an invitation for you to respond to what Jesus Christ has been talking to you about. I'm going to pray. You're invited to come. Our Father, we're thankful that you're so good to us, that you're so forgiving of us, that you're so kind to us, and, and yet so right in everything you do too, meaning so righteous and, and so holy and, and constantly maintaining the perfection of your standard. And so, God, thank you for... Uh, your word and for illuminating it to us this morning. I pray if there's somebody in here who's battling the conscience. I, play, I, I pray if they're, if they're trying to suppress the guilty feelings. I, I, I just pray that they will, will not walk away like the accusers of our text, but that they'll surrender like this woman and call you Lord today and launch out in this new direction of life. I pray for Christians to be strengthened in their walk. I thank you for being good to us. Would you accept this humble offering of praise as we sing to you now? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we sing these altars, these steps up front, or can serve as an altar to come, talk to God about that as we sing. God is so good. God is so good.